Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Turkey, it's so close to Europe, yet so different and challenging. Those who've been to Turkey dream of returning. Those who haven't wonder why anyone would choose to go there. As a moderate, secular Muslim nation in a world so full of extremists, Turkey is often misunderstood. But once you grasp the culture, Turkey becomes a traveler's delight. In the hour ahead, we'll enjoy an introduction to one of my favorite destinations with two friends from Istanbul, Lali Surma and Tanaran. Two tour guides will give us a peek into their homeland and dispel the misconceptions many Westerners may have about this land where East meets West. And closer to home, we'll venture out on another USA road trip with Jamie Jensen, this time concentrating on the southeastern U.S. There's a lot to discover from Ankara to Atlanta on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Stay with us. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Turkey, so exotic, so misunderstood. For many Americans, Turkey has an image problem, but the more you understand it, the more you like it. Coming right up, a married couple from Istanbul, Lali and Tan Aran, take us inside their home country. A look at this most intriguing land that bridges Europe, Asia, and the Middle East. It's all up next as we travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves. Right now, travel means Turkey. I've got two good friends with me who are Turkish tour guides, Lali and Tan. And uh, Lali was born and raised in Ankara. She's got a degree in neurolinguistics. That's studying the mechanics of learning foreign languages. And she got her degree in tourism and decided that was a little more fun than neurolinguistics. So since 1989, Lali has been leading tours around Europe. I also have with us Tan, who is uh, born and raised in Istanbul. Tan uh, got his uh, training as an interpreter, a simultaneous interpreter. And since 1986, he's been a tour guide also. Lolly and Tan have been leading tours for me at Europe Through the Back Door for nine years, and they've been married for eight years. And personally, I'm just very proud to have... Um, Friends in Turkey who can help show our travelers around Turkey and expose them to a wonderful corner of this planet. Uh, Tan and Lali, thank you very much for being here. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Turkey has an image problem among Americans. I just know from my own experience, when I was a teenager, I wanted to go to, to Europe, and my, my mom and dad said, finally, you can go to Europe, but promise us you won't go to Turkey. Well, they didn't know why it was dangerous, but Turkey to them was just kind of scary. I think when you go there, you, you realize otherwise, but Tan and Lali, why is it? I want to give you a little information about my own experience. When I got my degree about guiding, when I got my certification, my neighbors, my mother's neighbors, asked what your daughter is going to do. And my mother told her neighbors that her daughter is going to be guiding Americans around Turkey. And everybody was so surprised. Their jaw dropped. They said, Americans? But don't you watch Dynasty and Dallas? You're going to get let your daughter travel with Americans? It's a misconception. And there are such misconceptions between the peoples of different countries. And uh, because many people that live in Turkey belong to Muslim religion, it is projected to the rest of the world that Turkey can be quite fundamental and radical about their understanding and practice of Islam, whereas it's not true. So lately, with the Ayatollah and with Gaddafi and Saddam Hussein and all of this, there is this connection that Turkey has with Islam. But while Turkey is Muslim, it's not tied in with that sort of gang. No, it's not. The secular democracy that we have, it is the basis of the Turkish Republic since early 1920s. So Ataturk, really, when you guys got your constitution together and Ataturk basically ripped you out of the Middle Ages and, exactly. created, and forced a modern nation on exactly. Turkey, 60 exactly. million people the size of California. It's a little bigger than that. Uh, he, he really wanted a secular nation with a very clear division between mosque and state. Exactly, but... Ataturk, the leader of our nation, he didn't do it on his own. He had the support of people. People were ready for the change. And he was the leader who was at the right place at the right time. Another reason a lot of Americans are a little nervous in Turkey, I think, is because you've got a million people in uniform. Don't you have an army of a million? Yeah, more or less. More or less one no, million. Why do you have so many soldiers? I think that's a traditional thing. I mean, that's a state tradition to uh, have uh, so many people under arms. I think that's from the Cold War. 
My understanding is Turkey, as part of NATO, didn't have enough money to contribute, so they would make up the slack by having more men available in uniform. Exactly, but things are changing nowadays. Uh, we're trying to pass from a conscript army to, to a professional army. So okay, so until are, now, it's been when you reach a certain age, you're drafted, huh? Exactly, that's, uh, that's a state tradition. Huh. Now, um, I think there's another issue about the military in Turkey is that this secular government, if it becomes a theocracy, if religious leaders take over politically, the military is um, deputized to come in, take over, and reassert the secularness of the Turkish government. Is that true? Uh, not exactly. The, there's one thing here. Uh, let's not put everything in the same same basket. Uh, fundamentalism is something else. Fundamentalism is, uh, let's, let's put it this way. If somebody would, would like to live in a society where Islam is fully practiced, he's a fundamentalist. A fundamentalist does not mean a terrorist. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, sure. fundamentalism is something else. So um, I would say uh, 10% of our population are fundamentalists. They would like to be in a society where Islam is the only thing, is, is the only rule. On the other hand, there's that um, illiterate and uh, those with no comment at all on this. Following these uh, bad examples, as you've given the examples before. Uh, so I think that's the problem. I mean, those illiterate following the footsteps of, uh, of the bad examples. I think they're the problem here. Well, let's take this again. I, I mean, if Turkey has an election and if church politicians who are fundamentalists want to turn Turkey into a fundamentalist Islamic state, the Constitution welcomes the military to come in and take over power and reestablish the fact that it will always be a secular nation and separate mosque and state, just like we have the separation of church and state. Exactly. Constitution has this article saying that uh, military can intervene because that's uh, that's the role of the military. And we since don't nineteen twenty. We don't have that in our country. I mean, if we voted to have a turn our country into a fundamentalist it, Christian nation, the military would not be welcome to take over. That would be the the, the will of the people. It takes people to understand it and interpret interpret this uh, in, the, in the long term. So uh, I think people are putting a lot of effort into this, trying to uh, make it more democratic along the way in order to get a better understanding of this. Now, when I was in Turkey last, I remember playing backgammon on, a, on the side street in Istanbul and having a great time. Everything was just casual and easygoing. I was making lots of new friends and I was having a good roll of uh, luck with my uh, backgammon dice. And fundamentalists walked down the street covered in, in, a, in a sack, like where you can't even see the woman's face and so on. And there was a chill. I could feel a chill among all these modern Turks as these people walked down the street. And I realized that there is a nervousness as fundamentalism is, 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 getting, is running Iran and there's all sorts of fundamentalist movement going on. Uh, is there any tension today in Turkey with the threat of a fundamentalist movement? Not exactly. Um, think of this as uh, we, we had some bad problems in our politics in the past since uh, 1983 military intervention and uh, think of this as a protest uh, along the way four of the parties uh, big parties in turkey are uh, have disappeared they, they don't exist no longer uh, as people protested along the way this party right now um, uh, the leader of uh, turkey uh, they're from a fundamentalist background and uh, i would say only one quarter of this party actually uh, is in this path uh, other than that, three-fourths of the voters of this party actually are from different backgrounds, and they just voted for this party to uh, not to elect the other people. Okay, let's talk about we're traveling in Turkey. I am a big proponent of spicing up your European adventure by taking a side trip into Turkey. Do it at the end of your trip so you're moderating culture shock. Turkey is more challenging. Go to England first, then go to France, then go to Italy, and finish off with an exciting flurry in Greece and Turkey. Fly home from Turkey. Added advantage of that, it's delaying places best for shopping till the end of your trip. And uh, this day, with the dollar not very strong, you don't get many souvenirs in England or France. But you go to Turkey, and you can, you can really uh, have an enjoyable time spending your shopping money, and you're going to get more interesting stuff. Your shopping drawer will stretch a lot further, and you can fly home heavy. Okay, so we're going to go to Turkey. We're going to spice up our adventure. Is it safe from a health point of view in Turkey? From, you guys bring hundreds of tourists, American tourists around Turkey. Do people stay healthy? I can say that approximately... 10% of the tour members that are in each tour go through an intestinal distress. So a little loose stools. A little bit. But it's not because the food is not clean, that the environment is not sanitary. It is the adjustment to a different environment. You have immunity to your own environment. And right. when you go into a very different environment, as you develop an immunity, you might be challenged for a little bit. Challenged. 
Yes. Spend a little extra time than you want in the Turkish toilet. <laughs> but it can happen when a Turk comes to America. Well, Different that's what bacteria. exactly happens to me when I come here. Different bacteria. I experienced that in my travels, too. And I think it's important for us to realize that, hey, you just adjust your diet and you carry on. Um, and, and any good guidebook will explain for you basic common sense for dealing with uh, an intestinal problem like that. Yes. Uh, I would remind people that that's another advantage of delaying Turkey till the end of your trip. But it's not a kind of problem that's going to persist. It's a day or so. I mean, I've exactly. taken Exactly. It's taken like hundreds. a 12 hour thing. Yeah. So don't let that think like you're really no. sick or anything. It's just an adjustment. Health, no big problem. Safety. Uh, an American walking down the streets of a small Turkish town, obviously a, a wealthy person. Uh, won't every thief in town sort of uh, be drawn to him? Well, to start with, Rick, I must tell you that most of the small villages and towns don't even have a police force because there's no crime. The, some of the villages that we stay in, the Europe through the back doors tour to Turkey, they have no police. Really? Because and they, they don't, don't lock the doors. This is something. It is something. One time on one of our tours, a woman forgot her bag and the, they put it on another bus and it just went without a person, to the next town where we met it. Mm -hmm. And it was just sitting there in, in the bus station or the post office or whatever. I was very impressed by the, like, it's one big family when you get into the countryside of Turkey. One tour member told us what happened to him very recently. Before the tour started, he and his wife arrived to Istanbul early, a day early, to get rest a little bit, to get over the jet lag. And they decided to make some sightseeing on their own, so they took a cab. And he forgot his prescription glasses in the cab, very expensive titanium frames, he said. And he was very sorry that it was lost because it was expensive and he needed them to see properly. And the next day, the cab driver showed up with his glasses, wow. saying that it took him a little bit time because he went from door to door for all the customers that he drove for the date trying to find out who the owner is. You know, I've heard anecdotes like that time and time again. Obviously, if you're in a cruise port in Turkey or if you're in the streets of Istanbul, it might be different. You get into the countryside, you'll find it's an endearing, an endearing country. Wonderful people. You know, when you're going to Turkey, there are some ways that you can really connect. And it's so important not just to go to the, the culture show and, and see the whirling dervishes on the stage or something like that, but you can go out in the back streets, play backgammon, have a shave, go to a hammam. I had a most uh, cleansing experience there. I can I can ever remember. Now, you take your groups around Turkey. Is uh, hammam part of that experience? Yes, yes. We encourage also people to join to that experience. And it's once-in-a-lifetime experience. You can never get as clean elsewhere. And you're in a, this Ottoman kind of wonderland. you got steamy Tiles on the walls, marble benches that you sit on, attendants helping you bathe. It is quite a luxurious thing. I mean, a lot of it people is. here have a manicure or a pedicure. This is. is an entire body How many manicure. times you have someone scrubbing your back for you? <laughs> and the dirt comes off you in Tootsie Rolls. It does. It's just all the loose skin is dry. It is does. And then a massage. Mm -hmm. And Rick, don't forget that barber experience. I mean... I got a shave in, in Izmir, and it was so tight, and then they bring out a flame, and they splashed me with this flame, and it burned all the, the stray mm -hmm. hairs off Facial me. hair and uh, hair in the ear. Yeah, and my, my, my face felt like a baby's bottom, as far as I can tell. <laughs> I mean, and I didn't, need to, I didn't need to shave for, I didn't have a stubble for a couple of days. It was it's quite scary, interesting. It's scary, the idea of shaving every day. It's okay. really simple. So you have massage a massage after that. You have a massage, you have the, the, the sauna, massage, you have your shoulders. The, and you're spending... Five or ten dollars, I mean, it's peanuts, and then you have it's your nothing back in the We'll have another glass of chai as our insider's guide to Turkey continues in a moment on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
Public radio is your next best thing to a plane ticket. And this is Travel with Rick Steves. Give us a call at 877-333-RICK. Hey, we've got a couple of callers on the line, and we want to talk more about comfort level in Turkey. We've got Mary in Aiken, South Carolina. Uh, What's on your mind? Well, I uh, just wanted to tell you how much I enjoyed the Turkish tour, which we took. uh, We left uh, two weeks after 911 here, and we had Tan for our guide, and it was a wonderful tour, and we, we just saw spectacular scenery, wonderful Roman ruins, and you were just talking about the Turkish baths which I found so delightful. I've used olive oil soap ever since. Is that right? You picked up olive oil soap in That's Turkey? That's what we traditionally use in the Turkish bath, I olive oil soap. Hello, Mary, by the way. I love it. When you learn something like that and you take it home and you incorporate it into your day-to-day living and you become sort of a cultural hybrid. Mm-hmm. I can use my olive soap. I can eat my Weetabix. I can enjoy my Italian uh, pesto. Yes. Hey, Mary, you were in Turkey two weeks after 9-11. That's right. That was quite a a courageous thing to do as far as most travelers were concerned. Tell us a little more about um, your apprehensions and what it was like. Uh, We weren't apprehensive. Our family and friends were. There were only, I think, 11 other tourists on that uh, tour at that time that did come, but we had a wonderful time. It was a wonderful group of people. I think you realize it's more important than ever for us to keep traveling and, and better understand the world. How did it affect your understanding of, of Islam? Well, of course, we had the uh, interview or the session with the Iman, which was uh, just eye-opening. Now, and wait a minute. You had an interview with an Imam. That's like a local pastor in a mosque. Yes, yes. Tell us uh, more about that. We had quite a, a long session with him, and we were able to ask questions with Tan as an interpreter. And uh, he answered many of our questions, and it was it was just a very, very moving experience. Did he carry an AK-47 and hate Americans? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, he was charming and had the most wonderful smile I've ever seen. You're kidding. One of these Ayatollah guys? Uh, yeah, I guess that's what he was. <laughs> right, I don't know about that. But I mean, that, I think that is so great that in your, in your travels, with the help of leadership like Tan and Lolly, that you can actually meet uh, somebody who's an integral part of a, a community in the countryside of Turkey. Now, this, was, this was one of the great experiences. Another one was when we went to the home and had dinner in the home of one of the people uh, in uh, Cappadocia. And uh, the lady there was very, very interesting, and she even had tried to run for mayor at one time of this tiny village. A woman in small-town Turkey running for mayor, is that... But is she that... was talking about it. I don't know if she ever did it, but she She was... lost. She got into the elections for a second time. She lost, but the important point is not if she wins or loses, that she can make that step forward. That's right. Well, Turks are outspoken people. All you have to do is ask, and uh, you'll get the answer to any question. Mary, any other thoughts on Turkey? No, I just wanted to thank Tan for taking us out and uh, introducing us to one of the more exotic foods that they had. Let me ask you a personal question. Did you uh, have any diarrhea? <laughs> no, not at all in did, Turkey. Did you Only enjoy in th- South America. <laughs> in South America. Did, did you enjoy the food in Turkey? I love the food. What, what is your favorite food coming out of Turkey? Uh, lamb. Lamb. All right. Mm-hmm. Did you have the rice pudding? Oh, yes. I can't get enough of that sutlach, right? Is that the word sutlach? Yes. All right. <laughs> hey, Mary, thank you so much for your call. Thank you for letting me participate. You bet. Bye-bye. Bye now. We have Cheryl on the line in Somerset, Wisconsin. And uh, Cheryl, uh, thank you for calling us. What are your thoughts about traveling in Turkey? It's just really wonderful to hear Lale's voice. Uh, we traveled um, with Lale and Mary Ann in September of 2004. And that's probably the best travel experience of our lives. Well, now, I, I, and again, I don't really want to, I'm, I'm happy to promote my tours, and I'm happy to promote Lolly as a tour guide, but let's get a little beyond that and tell me why would a particular experience in Turkey be such a powerful um, travel experience for you? What made it so good? Um, so much of what the history of Turkey is, is the precursor of the history of the Christian religion. And being there in Ephesus, for example, and standing in the amphitheater where the Apostle Paul would have been was wonderful. Um, going to the theater at Aspendos with a full moon, knowing that 2,000 years ago people were there just where I am, touching the same places that, that people did then. Um, the Turkish bath, just experiencing a whole new culture that is just wonderful. And probably the best part of the whole trip was the warm, welcoming generosity of the Turkish people. 
You know, that's, everyone. That's always impressed me. You go to Turkey, and I mean, you meet real people. You stop the bus in the middle of nowhere, and you talk to merchants and carpet weavers and people in in sporting events and so on. There's so much of the commerce of Turkey is still, um, you know, cottage industries and people doing their traditional things on the streets and in the shops and walking around. It's just a, a exotic and, and heartwarming cultural scavenger hunt. Mm-hmm. Did you do any shopping on your trip? Well. I wasn't planning to, but I did. What'd you get? <laughs> I came home with a marvelous small silk carpet that I am just so happy with because it's just a work of art. Wow, the silk one. You went top end. Uh, yes, I did. Um, and my husband said, you're not buying anything. And he was the one that said, this touches us. This is beautiful. Really a beautiful way to bring home, I think, a bit of turkey. Mm-hmm and a bit of what someone else put their heart and soul into. That's a beautiful connection. I'll never forget being with one of our tours in the east side of Turkey. We went into the countryside, and we met a man who was famous in his region for carving prayer niches. And this man was in demand for his carving to decorate the the prayer niches in mosques all over that corner of Turkey. And we visited him, and he was so proud to show off his craft. And I remember he held his chisel up in the sky, and it just glistened in the sun, and everything was very clear. and, And he said... Uh, a man and his chisel, the greatest factory on earth. And I thought, there's a man who's really fulfilled. There's a man who's proud of what he does. And I was just really honored and touched to be able to be there and experience that. One sure. of the neat experiences I had when we were in Gazelliard in the morning, I got up very early, and because I knew that uh, the women were going to bring their um, animals, cows and sheep, down to um, a central location to go out to pasture. And I wanted to see where the pasture was because it was dry, and I had no idea where these women were going to take their animals. And we stood in the, in the center of the village, and women came down from each of the, the hillsides bringing their animals. And, of course, I didn't speak Turkish, and they didn't speak English. And we kind of indicated we wanted to follow them, and they grabbed our arms, and we walked together down to the place where um, all the animals were being taken. And we tried to get some directions, and they tried to give us directions. And it was just a sharing of woman to woman. This is what they do, and we want to see, and we want to experience. And that was a very special experience. And i got to say, Cheryl, you were in Guzelliert, which was the most out-of-the-way town that you can imagine, in, you know, lost in the, in the dusty center of Turkey, and there was a, a woman from a village that welcomed you with her to share a little bit of her life with you. Mm-hmm. That's routine when you get yourself into these magic corners of the world and you do your travels and you're open to connecting with people. And it, it, the world is about people and connecting and making sure that we understand each other. And, and she knew what I wanted, and I knew she was willing to share. It. And that was really special. It's hard not to be able to paint a human face on this or that corner of your globe after you've visited people like that, isn't it? Yes. People are probably getting tired back home here of me talking about Turkey <laughs> because it's I just, every chance I get, I just say, you know, it's a wonderful place to visit. One of my favorite regions is the Indian subcontinent, and it's kind of frustrating to talk about it because people just can't understand the magic of getting out there and experiencing it yourself. And when you're in a a place like Turkey, uh, boy, you're able to really, really uh, bring that home, and it does broaden your perspectives, I think. Very much. Thank you, Cheryl, very much for um, taking part in our conversation. Thank you. Happy travels. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Bye-bye. So, Tan and Lali, I would like to talk just quickly about some of the rudiments of travel. First of all, do Americans need visas to go to Turkey? Yes, they do, which they can easily obtain for $20 at the port of entry. And uh, the language barrier, um, I'm Turkish and English, you know, you learn, when you're there, you learn merhaba and a few, a few polite words and so on, but can an American travel speaking English in Turkey? In the big cities, there's no problem because uh, very many of the young generation actually speak English or any other foreign language. So young, but educated people in, yeah, in young cities Young and educated. Like actually, we have this uh, mandatory uh, foreign language education in the high schools and uh, uh, there's private schools and there's uh, uh, education in foreign languages. But in the countryside, that may be a problem because uh, we usually go to places where no other foreign visitor had ever been before. In many cases, I've met people in, in towns of Turkey who've never met an American. I took a group of people to a home in uh, Black Sea Coast, and I asked any of them if they've ever met an American, and we were all sitting cross-legged, you know, drink, uh, drinking our, our cherry uh, drinks and eating the soup lunch. None of them had ever met a, a real American, and it was a wonderful connection. Uh, they didn't have a football, but they had a football-shaped honeydew melon, so we showed them how to play a little football. They didn't know how to thumb wrestle. We did that. I went to the uh, bank, and I wanted to just change money, and the bank manager actually invited me into his office to sit down and have tea. He was just so proud that an American came into his bank. He wanted to serve me tea. You don't get this when you travel in, in Ireland or England or Spain because they've seen Americans. 
What a wonderful adventure for people to have. Uh, when we're thinking about Turkey, we've got to remember it's about the size of California. It's a little bigger than California, actually, and it's um, vast distances and quite inexpensive to travel by bus. My experience is the trains are pretty lousy, except for the connection from Istanbul to Ankara. Otherwise, you would rely on buses. Would you agree with that? Yes. Yes, definitely. And the buses cost, what, about a dollar an hour or something like that to travel? Well, from Istanbul to Ankara, I think it's around twenty twenty five dollars on a regular bus. But they're the luxury, the uh, luxury bus services, and uh, they're up to fifty dollars or sixty dollars. Uh, but uh, nowadays, uh, air travel is getting less expensive too. I mean, is that right? So you there's can, a you, lot of competition going on within Turkey. Within you can Turkey, fly. Because yeah, yes. I remember the old twenty four hour bus ride from Istanbul to Erzurum. That was quite an ordeal. You can directly fly now, or <laughs> if you go with a better bus company, you'll be served the meal. You'll be served tea and coffee as you drive. Now, when people are traveling in Turkey, they'll be served a lot of tea. Yes. Turks say that you, you drink hot tea on a hot day. We always want to drink a cold Coke on a hot day. The hot tea on a hot day takes your burning heat away from you. It cools you off. It's probably there's a scientific explanation to it, but if it's a hot day, we go for a hot tea. Maybe it is putting yourself into a very, very hot room, even hotter than the exterior. Okay, and so it's once all you relative. Walk out, yes. Oh, that's interesting. Now, you guys are in the tour business. You've been in the tour business for 25 years or something like this. I am impressed by how important it is to get away from the cruise ports, and I've got a fear that when people come into Turkey, they got one day on the mainland, and they're jumping off of a cruise ship and taking a, a little tour of uh, Bodrum or something like this. They're missing the boat. What advice do you have for people who are going to really uh, experience Turkey? Uh, depends on how much time they will have to travel in Turkey. But first, they should start with Istanbul, which is a spectacular city to experience, to get to know more about. Like there are great cities around the world. Paris is a great city. Rome is a great city. And they were and they still are capitals of magnificent civilizations. But no other city had been the capital city to two major civilizations of the world, the Byzantine Empire and the Ottoman Empire. It usually sounds like a cliche when I say the East meets the West, but it actually is. It's There's where everything like, got started. I agree. Istanbul is one of the most uh, exotic and exhilarating travel experiences any big city can give you. And, of course, you shouldn't skip the rest of the country. If you can travel a little bit inland to central Turkey, to Cappadocia, it will give you an in-depth understanding of the Turkish culture, how the traditional living is what people consider humor, how people make a living, how people traditionally dress up. So it will be like seeing two different sides of the medallion, seeing the big cities and the countryside. And the traditional lifestyles are still uh, apparent in yes, Cappadocia. Yes. I love Cappadocia, the center of Turkey, the exotic uh, small-town countryside rural Turkey. Also, I think Ankara is underrated. Uh, we, you know, When you're in Germany, you should see Frankfurt or Berlin. When you're in Italy, you should see Milano. And I think when you're in Turkey, if you see Ankara, you've got a chance to gain an appreciation of this country's love of Ataturk, the father of modern Turkey, uh, and uh, his mausoleum there and the associated museum. And the National Museum in Ankara, I think, is the best place for all of the um, ancient treasures that have been excavated. A few years ago, it was chosen as the best museum in Europe by the European Council. Is that right? It the, is. The National Museum of Antiquities, or what's it called? It is called the Anatolian Civilizations Museum. It is a small museum when you compare it to British Museum or Louvre or Metropolitan. But it has got very, very valuable artifacts on display there. You can witness the footsteps of human civilization from the very early times until our date. It's chronologically displayed. Simple, not very crowded. It's not overwhelming. It's a visitor-friendly museum. And it opens the pages of a history book to you with each step you take. So enticing. You make me want to go to Turkey. I want to thank Lolly and Tan very much for helping us out and remind our, our listening audience that if you want more information on Turkey, go to ricksteves.com and in the radio corner we'll have some backup material on the work that Lolly and Tan do. And we want to thank you for traveling with us. Thank you both very much. Thank, thank you, you, Rick. Advice on hitting the road for that great American road trip. Coming up on Travel with Rick Steves. Take me riding in the car, car, take me riding in the car, car. Take you riding in my car, car, I'll take you riding in my car. I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves. Right now, we're traveling around our own country by car. And I've got with me Jamie Jensen, who writes the guidebook to road tripping around America, the book Road Trip USA, a thousand pages of information Jamie has gleaned from 15 years and 
400,000 miles of travel. Jamie Jensen, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Jamie, let's talk about road tripping in the southeast of our country. Um, I live in the, in the northwest, so if I want to go complete opposite and dive right into it, give me some ideas on where I might want a road trip. What's the strategy for a good vacation in the southeast? Well, I think in the southeast, more than in a, even a lot of places, you kind of want to dip in and out of the cities and really get into the rural heartland of the country because there are lots and lots of small towns in the south where you'd think time has forgotten them. They're like walking into a 1930s movie set or something, but they're still alive and well. Stop into these little places, get a milkshake in a drugstore, and just have a good old time. Wow, a time warp, a deep rural south. Yeah, and there's, and good music, good food. It's got something for everybody. Where would you find the best time warp rural south? Well, one of my favorite places to send people is uh, kind of famous uh, Selma, Alabama, which I mean not only sounds nice, and it, but it has all sorts of different you know significance to people. It was a hugely important in the Civil War, and of course later on in the Civil Rights Movement. I mean, this year I think was 40 years since the march from Selma to Montgomery, and the people who were you know key in the Civil Rights Movement are still living in Selma, and still working and enjoying the changes they've fought for and stuff. But it's it's a real kind of nice history check that you read about these things in books, and then you can actually go and meet the people who made them happen. What's the feeling if you get yourself into a real off- beat time warp, rural, uh, poverty-stricken probably town, and you park your fancy car and you get out and walk around and you step into a, into a little cafe and ask for a soda pop. I mean, do you feel comfortable? Do you feel welcome? I, I always have. I mean, there's certain times, you know, you don't want to go there two in the morning to some roadside, you know, honky-tonk or something and expect to be met with a smile necessarily. But these towns, I mean, a lot of them, these people have chosen the kind of quieter life. They don't necessarily feel deprived, you know, although they might not have everything that you'd have in your big city with your, you know, wireless Internet or whatever. They, they're actually, it's kind of a reality check because, you know, there's happy children walking around talking to their families, and it's kind of a nice thing to see. And I've felt very welcome. I think, you know, America is the places I've felt, you know, any kind of animosity has always been in the big cities where I think people are very aware of the haves and have-nots. Where these, I just, I mean, honestly, I, I try and tell everybody who thinks about, well, do I really want to go to Alabama? You know, it's a loving, it's a real nice place. I mean, the South kind of invented hospitality, I think, and they are pretty welcoming, even if they don't necessarily approve of your politics. Right. Does that genteel Southern hospitality survive in, in this uh, day and age? Yeah, at all levels. I mean, people do kind of, there used to be a big tradition of welcoming travelers and, you know, passing the time, talking to, making people feel welcome. That was part of, you know, being a you know, respectable person. That's what you did. And I think that's all still very much alive and well. And you get welcome. You know, the wonderful accents down there. I can't, I'm there a day and uh, I start talking. Like start picking I, it up, I, huh? The Mississippi Delta was shining like a national guitar. I am following the river down the highway through the cradle of the Civil War. I'm going to Graceland, Graceland. Memphis, Tennessee, I'm going to Graceland Poor boys and pilgrims with families And we are going to Graceland More exploration of the colorful corners of our own country with Jamie Jensen Coming up on Travel with Rick Steves Buongiorno, my name is Donald White I'm a Scotsman, I live in Italy Let's travel with Rick Steves Hope you find some beaches on the coast out there with plenty of life. Cause I know the road is very long. In my head I'll always hold a song. Now keep a good thought for you. I'm Rick Steves. I'm talking with uh, Jamie Jensen, who writes the guidebook Road Trip USA. It's a thousand pages of information he's gleaned from 15 years and almost half a million miles of driving around our country. Okay, now off the coast of the Carolinas, I'm intrigued by these outer banks or these uh, like barrier islands. What's that like? I see in your book you've got one of the highways that actually goes right along those barrier islands. Yeah, I mean, I try to follow the ocean. I love oceans, and walking along the beach, there's nothing more kind of soothing to me than strolling barefoot on the sands. So I try and do that, you know, whenever possible. But the Outer Banks are, you know, again, this, they're, they are islands, and 
quite a lot of them have been protected within the national um, seashore, they call it, kind of like Cape Cod has further north. And it's a good thing they protected them because there are, you know, in and amongst these places, there's a whole lot of strips of vacation homes and you can hardly see anything. But then you yeah. hit the state, you know, the national park boundary, and it's like going back 300 years. And it's just, I mean, Roanoke is, is there. It's the first settlement in North America or you know, apart from the Vikings or whoever else, right. first established settlement, Walter Raleigh and all that, disappeared, and they now do a play all summer long where you can go and experience this, you know, vanished village. Yeah. And it's kind of neat and kind of hokey, but then, you know, 40 miles away from there, you can go and walk these sands where all there is, the only sign of life is these wonderful old lighthouses that they built to protect, you know, sailors who used to be the, the only ones who would get out there. Okay, so if you're going to the Outer Banks, be sure to check out the national parks. Jamie, I think when a lot of people are, are driving uh, along the eastern seaboard of our country, they're just inclined to drive all the way down to the very end, to Key West. What's that like uh, from Miami heading all the way out to Key West? Then again, you're going across a lot of little islands there, or keys, and the wonderful thing there is there's a road, the only road linking these islands is called the Overseas Highway, and it was built, I think, in the 20s as a railroad that was out to a supposed tourist resort that a man was developing at Key West. And so there's either side of the road, all you see is the blue sea. You have the Gulf to one side and the Atlantic Ocean to the other, and it's just an astounding drive. Hmm. I mean, the islands themselves have been quite a bit developed because they're obviously very popular, you know, Key Largo, um, those sorts of places that probably people have heard about. But, you know, 100 miles later from Miami, you're out at Key West, which is really you know, the kind of end of the American world out there. You're closer to Cuba than to Miami. Now, the, the, the road originated as a railroad? It did, yeah. It was built, and then a big hurricane came wow. and washed it away, and then the federal and, government took it over and built a highway. An elevated railroad going all the way out to Key West. A wonderful. Incredible. I mean, the, the history of Florida tourism is really kind of a, worthy of a book in itself. All right. I'm talking with Jamie Jensen, uh, the author of Road Trip USA, and we're talking about road tripping around the southeast of our country, and we've got some travelers on the line. We have Nan in Portland. Nan, thanks for your call. What are your thoughts on road tripping in the southeast? Well, my husband and I have a chance to spend about three days in the, along the North Carolina coast, and uh, we always wanted to go to the Outer Banks. And I know about Cape Hatteras, and I know the Kitty Hawk area is there, but I was wondering if what else is a don't miss in that area? Well, the things you mentioned are definitely don't miss. The Cape Hatteras seashore is fabulous and just wonderful for long walks on the shores. And to see Kitty Hawk where, you know, the Wright brothers had that first powered flight, it's kind of amazing how much the world has changed since then. You can actually walk along the route where they flew for their first, whatever, 11 seconds, I think it was. Mm. How is that developed, by the way, for tourism? Is there a museum there at Kitty Hawk? There, it's a kind of national historic site, national memorial. There's basically a big obelisk on what was a sand dune. They went there because it's, you know, a fairly windy steady wind and a high rise of a sand dune. So they you know, rolled down the sand dune and took flight. And it really hasn't changed much. Now, at the edges of this, you now get hang gliding courses and you know, this kind of development around it. But the, the site itself is still pretty much as it was then. Hang gliding at Kitty Hawk. Now, Nan knows about the obvious stuff, the Kitty Hawk and the Cape Hatteras. If you think of Outer Banks of North Carolina, Jamie Jensen, are there any offbeat ideas on what she might want to do? Well, I mean, what I was um, mentioning before, that Manteo, the, the, the towns, most of the development in the history is kind of inland a little bit from the islands, but the islands are, you know, five miles, ten miles offshore, some of them. And so to kind of every once in a while turn inland and visit these historic sites that are, you know, you have parts of town that are three or four hundred years old, and you kind of get a sense of what it might have been like for these first colonists to have come there and, you know, really tried to start Ameri what turned out to be America. Are there um, ferries or small boats that go out to the other islands? Yes, there's a the half a part of the highway that isn't um, paved is linked by state-operated ferries. So when you get to the end of the island, there'll be a ferry boat to meet you, and they run pretty much all day long, and they're very reasonable, and it's 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 like a bridge, but it's a boat. And and for kids, I mean, I used to love ferry boats. Lots of little things like that. The kind of road tripping can open you on to all these different modes of transport, and you know, bridges and ferries, and just to stop and appreciate those every once in a while and enjoy the view. And you'll, you'll see porpoises dancing off. Hmm. Oh, great. Lots of little things to be alive to. Oh, that's wonderful. And how about either places to rent bicycles? Yes, I mean, these are, especially if you're there in summer, which is the main season, there's no end of things to see and do. There's water parks, and it's almost too much to some people's taste. 
certainly, you know, make your plans beforehand and find out, you know, if you know what dates you're going to be there because it is very popular and you realize just how populated the East Coast is when you go somewhere on a summer weekend. Yeah. Jamie, I'm curious, Jamie, when you're t- talking about these ferries connecting the islands, is it mostly uh, tourists and, and this kind of thing or, or do you get uh, a sense of any sort of community there? And uh, what is your frank appraisal of that? Well, there there are a lot of you know vacation homes. People go for the weekends. A lot of, especially in South Carolina, Georgia, these beautiful old islands are being turned into golf courses. And you know, Hilton Head is probably the most famous one. And and that's kind of a downside. But there are still places where people go out and fish for shrimp every morning and come back in and you know load them off the docks and to find those places. You know, McClellanville, South Carolina, is a place I stumbled upon in my travels around, and it's exactly that still that you can just go and watch these men unload their the fish and you know bring them home now a lot of the fish they catch off the north carolina coast ends up being shipped off for sushi in tokyo Hmm. which is a bit of a change but you know people are still there they're still working they're still you know their families and forefathers have been working these waters for a long time and well, it sounds wonderful. I'm really looking forward to it. It is. I hope you have a nice time. And Jamie, this you cover this uh, actual region in your Road Trip USA book. Yes. Yeah, I've got okay. you know 30 pages on that, that sort Just of stretch of coast, and right. it is definitely a you know there's one thin road on right. these very thin barrier islands. So what's there is right along the road, so it's perfect for kind of road tripping. All right, Nan. Well, thanks. Thank you very much. Thanks for your call and good luck on your trip. Thank you. And we have Elaine on the line in Griffin, Georgia. Elaine, hello. Hey, hello, how are you? Very good, thanks for your call. Welcome south. We're talking in your neck of the woods. You, you are indeed. What tips do you have for people from the uh, other parts of our country who want to visit the southeast? Well, we um, just exactly what Mr. Jensen said about the hospitality is so true. Wonderful music, wonderful, wonderful food, um, the road less taken, the Blue Highway, many, many towns with wonderful old homes to explore, factory tours, um, you know, be sure to eat barbecue. We pride ourselves on one kind of barbecue in Georgia and, and a different kind in Alabama and a different kind in South and North Carolina. You're kidding. Now, how does it no, change from I'm, state I'm real to state? About yeah. we're, we're real about shaved or sliced or tomato-based or vinegar-based. We're, we're pretty pure about that kind of thing. So you go to another state and you see how they mess up their barbecue and you, have you, that, that you, you swell right. with, with Georgia <laughs> pride, huh? How does the Georgia barbecue, uh, why is it the best? Well, I think, you know, there's, there's a certain element of because it's home. <laughs> sure. And, um, but we do um, most commonly whole pig barbecue that's shredded in, in a tomato sauce. Huh. And um, people in South Carolina do a vinegar-based sauce, so that's a two, huh. two very different, what, different reasons. Real traditional to eat coleslaw um, and Brunswick stew with your... Um, and what some people call light bread, which is really sliced white bread huh. with, with barbecue. It's funny you mention that because when I go around the country on these pledge drives visiting different public television stations, mm-hmm. they're so proud of their barbecue. They got barbecue <laughs> today. Uh, <laughs> and I don't know the differences, but I guess you guys in the Southeast do. Well, we're, some of us do. <laughs> hey, Jamie, Jamie <laughs> what's, do. what's your take on, on barbecue, Jamie, in your, in your guidebook research? Well, um, the key to me is that it's proper smoke, that they're actually cooking it on the barbecue. A lot of people just kind of cook it and then slather sauce on it. Mm-hmm. No, you got to mix it all up together. Yeah, but I mean, what people pass off as barbecue is, so follow, follow people. If you smell smoke, you're going in the right direction. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Usually you don't want to run, but you want to head right to it. <laughs> there's, a, there's a good travel trip. Years ago, I read Blue Hi- William Lee's Teat Moon's Blue Highways, and I determined then I was going to travel and, and my daddy was a shunpiker in his era, so... Oh, you're um, saying that's music to my ears, you shunpike and all that. I mean, we actually put up bumper stickers saying, your guide to the road less traveled when we put out the book. So, no, there's a whole lot of people out there wanting to do this, so... Get me up to speed on this. Uh, Elaine, what is a shunpiker? Somebody who doesn't do the turnpikes. Really? All right, so they're just... That is the, that's the whole essence of uh, road, I don't know, mis- road tripping. Is, is that... Yeah. Yeah, they yeah. started off as kind of... The, these cussed Yankees who wouldn't pay the toll, so they just walked alongside the turnpikes that they oh, had to that charge a penny to, uh-huh. to go on. So they became the shunpikers, and then it was people who wanted to kind of find their own way around, which is a real American instinct, I think, to you know not just follow what everyone else is doing, but to make it your own. I love that. Tell me, say that again. My daddy was a shunpiker. He was a shunpiker. <laughs> My daddy was. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, Elaine, you mentioned factory tours. What, what's, a, what's, a, what's a good factory tour to check out? Well, um, I... It really, if you ask in a, in, a, in a town, in a chamber of commerce, you can often, for example, my town still has 
some some textile mills, and some of those tours, some of those mills give tours at certain times of the year, and or certain seasons of the year, and so you can do that. Um, there's a wonderful homemade candy hmm. place not too far from me where they make the best divinity and and things like. Now that's not a factory factory, mm-hmm. but they'll let you go in and see how they do it and so forth. Um, I think being open to those kinds of opportunities is always fun. I was thinking of this in Georgia. There's a fruitcake factory down in Claxton, in Claxton, Georgia. There is indeed, and you can tour that one. You sure can. Yeah, and the other thing I like to do is not so much factory tours, but just go to the statues that, like in Plains, Georgia, there's the world's largest peanut. Mm-hmm. So think before Jimmy Carter, and there's a statue of Vulcan in Birmingham, Alabama, because they used to have the huge steel mills there. So mm-hmm. there's all sorts of signs of industry, even if you don't go to the factories that may or not be open when you're there. True. Just a, a thought here. When you have the opportunity to make a road trip, you owe it to yourself and your fellow passengers to delve into the opportunities, whether it's with a guidebook or talking to the local people or whatever, but there are so many opportunities to miss, aren't there? Well, it's easy to kick yourself when you get home and someone says, oh, didn't you go to this place? Right. That, you know, everyone in, you know, who goes to Georgia goes to see this. So right. it's, a, it's a great thing to really be open to these as you're going along. If you find a sign, you know, flashing in the night, go and see what it is. And, you know, buy guidebooks, listen to the radio when you're traveling around and really tune into the local culture. Hey, Elaine, we'll head on to Georgia and try some of that barbecue, okay? Welcome. We'd love to have you come. Thanks for your call. Uh-huh. And uh, Jim from Anchorage emailed us, and he's asking about the Natchez Trace Parkway in Mississippi. He said it was just an incredible uh, ride. What do you know about that, Jamie? Um, yeah, it, it is. It's a historic um, trail that used to link Nashville, uh, Tennessee, with Natchez, Mississippi, which was kind of where they would meet the riverboats. So traders used to put their goods on the river. They'd float downstream, and then from Natchez they could meet the bigger ocean-going ships and then they would walk back on what was the Natchez Trace. And then again in the 30s, thanks to Franklin Delano Roosevelt and the New Deal and all that, they turned it into a wonderful parkway. So you can now drive this road, which is you know, no commercial traffic, not a lot of development, but it parallels this old footpath where, you know, Mary where the Lewis walked along for his last days. And, and Jim recommends at least spending one night overnight there. Well, and it's about 500 miles, too. So. Oh, okay. Well, and now what, what exactly is a parkway? They have a lot in the Northeast, but they're roads that are designed for scenic driving. They're, you know, pleasurable roads that kind of have a slightly slower pace. Probably the most famous one is the Blue Ridge Parkway, which runs along the crest of the Blue Ridge Mountains in North Carolina and southwest Virginia. And another wonderful ride that was created, you know, in the 1930s when people did scenic driving tours and cars were really this kind of democratizing power. And so there were a few of these around, but the Natchez Trace is one of these where you don't have mountains so much, but you have these wonderful lush kind of southern lowlands and driving along and tuning into the Mississippi Delta radio stations, and it's, it's pretty magical. In his uh, email, Jim says it's a great 50-mile-an-hour ride. Is that an indication that the parkway actually has a slower speed limit? Yes, yeah, it definitely does, and there are, you know, national park rangers out there with their radar guns, so if you get carried away, but the nice thing about it is there's no through traffic, really. People are there to right. enjoy where they are. Oh, so that's great. sounds delightful. Ida from uh, Shingle Springs in California emailed us, and she wants to know where's the best home base uh, from which to see South Carolina, uh, Charleston, what, is she, what would you recommend, Charleston or Savannah? Ooh, that's, that's a big debate. I, I like Savannah because it's a bit more kind of blue-collar in a certain way. Charleston is, is still a very wealthy place, and there are some amazing mansions there. And If you want to experience kind of old South culture, Charleston is definitely you know, okay. a place to go to. But they're, they're 100 miles apart, and in between them is some amazing, again, those lowland uh, South Carolina islands. So you, I would say do them both. Okay, but if you want to get uh, down and dirty Savannah, if you want old wealth, you go to Charleston. Yeah. Okay. Mark from San Jose, California asked, is the Florida Keys any place to take a large RV? He's got a 38-foot RV. Hmm. What are the, what are the, I don't know uh, that I don't want to be going anywhere in a 38-foot. I have enough trouble in my own van sometimes. i got an old Volkswagen, and that's big big enough. When you go down to, basically, if you go to Key West, is it just like driving on a highway, or are there limits? Yeah, it's a come? pretty major highway. I'm sure you'd be fine, I think. I mean, I don't know about turning it around, because it's a pretty narrow road a lot of places. But I think the, the thing to do there, if, as and when you can, is to get off and you know get on a bike, get on a motorbike or something, would seem to be a much more pleasurable way to do it. That would make sense. That's right. I'm talking with Jamie Jensen, who is the author of Road Trip USA. Jamie has driven 400,000 miles in the last uh, 15 years as he has brought out this 1,000-page manual to enjoying our country 
by car on the smaller roads rather than the big highways. Jamie Jensen, thanks so much for your uh, sharing your expertise. Oh, thanks for having me. Talk to you later. Okay. Can you describe the place where you live so that other travelers would want to visit it? Maybe you live in a popular destination and you have a unique take on it. Or perhaps you live in a place that nobody visits and you think they should. See if you can single-handedly bump up the tourist trade in your hometown. Send us a short hometown promo and we'll use our favorites on the air and post them on our website. For all the details, see ricksteves.com. Our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. You'll find more online in the radio section at ricksteves.com, where you can look up information on today's program and others in this series. You can also submit your questions and comments for Rick from our website to be included on future editions of Travel with Rick Steves. That's where you can also send us your submissions for our 15 Seconds of Fame department and sign up for our Radio Waves email updates. Details are at ricksteves.com. Some of the people who help bring you Travel with Rick Steves include communication support from Sonia Grosset and Robin Goddard, technical support from Dan Souter and Matt Iglesias, and additional assistance from Reagan Sewell and Pat O'Connor. Our theme music is composed by Jerry Frank. I'm your producer, Tim Tatton. Join us next time as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.